1: Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we
0: cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation.
1: Welcome to Episode 7 of Talk Travel Asia. Today, we are doing impressions of Southeast Asia, and the way this came about is uh, my co-host Trevor and I were just thinking what can we do that's fun? And we thought, you know what, let's share some stories about neat experiences we've had in all kinds of different countries around the region that kind of maybe highlight some unique differences in those places. So I'm Scott Coates from Kuala Lumpur, and with me we have... Hi, Scott. This is Trevor Ranges recording in Bangkok, Thailand. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, my friend. Uh, I have a cold beer, as we have as our mandate. We always must have a cold beverage when we do this. How about you?
0: I am drinking some sang som, one of the national beverages of Thailand. Yeah,
1: I will keep my whole garden and you can keep your sang som. How's that sound? No problem. Yeah, I have some foggy memories. We could actually do an episode on maybe foggy drinking memories throughout the region. Yeah, or
0: local liquors.
1: You know, that's a good one. Local liquors. Let Mark that down. Local liquors. That's absolutely a great episode. Well,
0: you know, it's actually something really interesting about traveling. I mean, if we talk about Vietnam, the Bia Hoi, drinking beer on these tiny little plastic stools, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Those are the kinds of things we're going to share, just some of our impressions about the different
1: countries uh,
0: here in Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. And you and I have been fortunate enough to, I know I'm coming up on 15 years here in Southeast Asia. And how long is it for you? Uh, just over 13 now. Just over thirteen. So we were thinking, you know what? The it, the one thing about this region that's so neat, especially I guess more for people from Canada and America, where I mean you can fly for five hours in our countries and get off. There's the same restaurants, the same you know language, the same accents. And here you fly, let's say an hour in any direction from Bangkok, and you're in a different country. The language is different, the food is different, the dances to everything's different. And we thought yeah, you know what, let's just recall some of our neat little travel stories that maybe illustrate something unique about those places. And and yeah, here we are.
0: Yeah, you know, because sometimes uh, living over here, each of the countries, and, and we're just talking Southeast Asia, not even Asia at large, which is just this massive continent, right? Yeah. But within Southeast Asia, if you have Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Myanmar, Indonesia, Uh, Singapore. Each of these Mm. countries are are so different. And you could be on an airplane and be in a different country within an hour.
1: Yeah, it is. It is quite staggering. It always kind of gets me. I went to Cambodia last week, and I think that was an hour and 45 minutes, but from KL. But still, I mean, just different planet again. So so that's really neat. So we're just going to touch on some different countries and, and places you go. Yeah, I remember, actually, myself, the first time I really realized that places were so different in Southeast Asia was one of my first visits. And it's got to be back in like, man, maybe 93 or something. I'd come over to visit my friend, my ex business partner, he was in Thailand. And we went to Hanoi, me and another buddy. And I thought, you know, okay, it's Vietnam, but just thinking it'd be similar. And being in the stairwell, maybe five floors up of our hostel, looking down into a wet market in the street. And it was just, totally different than Bangkok, which was weird for me then. The smells were different. The people looked different. They had the conical hats. And I remember it hit me like, oh, wow, it's really different over here from region to region. As silly as that sounds, it actually took me that moment to realize that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And uh, because they're different and there are so many cool different destinations in each of these countries. Um, it's difficult, I think, for people just to come over for two weeks and, and try to see your experience at all. You know um, we just recently talked about planning a high value vacation and, and not trying yeah. to do too much um, because you, you do to some degree want to immerse yourself in these individual cultures to really get a good experience and feel for them. Right. Well, are you ready to tell some tales? Sure. You want to kick it off? Uh, you're, you're down in Malaysia. Why don't you tell us your some early impressions of Malaysia or something that, that is distinctly Malaysian to you?
1: Yeah. you know it's, it's, it's pretty common and you'll read it in any travel book, but I'd lived in Thailand for 13 and a half years uh, running a travel company. And that's a culture in Thailand that really there are ties. Now there are some other ethnic groups, but got here in Malaysia and right away you realize, wow, there are Malay people there are tamils so the indians that the british brought over when they ran the show here and there's chinese and they're all malaysian um they definitely have their separations they have their own communities their own cultures but they are all distinctly malaysian in fact they even have a slogan here at the moment one malaysian it's trying to emphasize the fact that you have these three N ethnicities which is is really different and here if you go to a certain kind of food court it will be halal because it caters to Malays, so there's no pork at that one and if you want pork you tend to go to a food court that's more chinese so it was that kind of initial realization that wow there's a real separation in people that actually carries over to food and the kind of food courts you get but also the english at the same time i mean this is a country that was colonized by the British, and and as a result, a lot of people learned English back in those days, and they still speak it. So the English is way better than Thailand here. In fact, you, you living in Kuala Lumpur, you don't really even need to learn uh, the local language. So that was sort of my first one. How about you in Malaysia?
0: Well, you know what I found really interesting. Um, I think that. Most people who have never been to Thailand have some idea of, you know, the elephants and the beaches and Thai dancing and Thai food. But I think that a lot of people they don't they don't already have an impression of what Malaysia is like, and maybe they've heard of Kuala Lumpur and and the, mm-hmm. Patron- the, the Patronus Towers, which are, used to be the tallest building in the world. And and Malaysia does have these nice clean, modern cities. But what I found interesting about Malaysia was the the natural part of it, like the jungles and and the beaches. And I think Malaysia still has just this spectacularly beautiful jungle and and nature that they've done a pretty good job of preserving.
1: Yeah, I've only done a little bit of traveling. But uh, what I've seen, yeah, definitely exudes that. Uh, And I've heard the islands on the northeast coast, I'm going next month, and you've been there and you say they're great, right?
0: Yeah, I, I camped on the beaches of the Perhension Islands back in 1996, and uh, you know, threw, threw a bucket, the bucket down a well to to rinse off to shower. And I've I've heard they've <laughs> developed a lot. But uh, not long ago, maybe in like 2003 or 4, we actually went to Borneo. And, and a lot of people may not know that the island of Borneo is part of Malaysia as well as part of Indonesia and, and the small country of Brunei. Right. But, but in Borneo, it's spectacular. They still have wild orangutans and uh, all this exotic wildlife. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, Nat, and I uh, spent a couple of days way out in the jungle. And uh, we even got peed on by a flying lemur.
1: That's lucky, is it not?
0: Yeah, there's very (laughs) few places in the world outside of Malaysia, I think, that that flying lemurs will will, will try to urinate on you.
1: Yeah, well, very cool. That's a neat impression. I'm going to keep you on the hot seat again. So let's move north of Malaysia to where you are now. How about a Thai impression? Well, you know, Thailand's obviously a very interesting place, and
0: uh, there's so many different aspects of it that you could talk about. Um, I first came to Thailand back in 1996. And again, I was a bit of a, a hippie backpacker. I was trying to camp everywhere. I did some hitchhiking around Thailand, which mm-hmm. was surprisingly not that difficult. Um, but one of the biggest culture shocks I had in Thailand was up in Chiang Mai. Uh, we were at like kind of a local restaurant. And when I went into the, the toilet, while you're you're peeing, this is another pee story, by the way, while you're, yeah, <laughs> while you're peeing in, in the bathrooms, uh, a, a man will come up behind you and put a hot towel on your neck and, and start massaging you and uh yeah yeah it's kind of disconcerting.
1: Yeah, I remember having that happen. It I kind of think it's something that's becoming a bit of a let's call it a lost art, but definitely my first visit, my first few years, yeah, you'll never get over that you know, we as North Americans, you don't talk to someone else in the toilet. So you get in there and you're kind of in your private moment and all of a sudden you feel someone's hands on your shoulders and it feels nice for a second. And then you realize, oh, a man's touching me while I'm touching my penis using the toilet. It's just something doesn't feel right about that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it, obviously it's this cultural thing, right? But uh, yeah, they'll, they'll go ahead and they'll try to, to crack your neck as well. And, I, you know, I'm a little nervous about someone cracking my neck in, in a doctor's <laughs> office, let alone in, in the men's room.
1: Well, one of my first memories, and Vos vivid, it's not nearly as colorful as yours, and it doesn't involve P, uh, was a trip to Doi Me Salong in northern Thailand, in the country's northernmost province called Chiang Rai. It was probably my second or third month in the kingdom, and my business partner and I were looking for somewhere to add to our trips, to build a northern trip. And this hippie type character recommended we rent motorbikes, which are kind of scooters tests, and drive to this town called Mesalong that he said had tea. And it's an incredibly thrilling ride. The roads just get steeper and windier as you go in. It's it's they're absolutely unbelievable. And as we crested this hill, all of a sudden there's just terraces of oolong tea. And it just it's a small, compact town Uh, run by Chinese who farm this tea. Uh, There's Aka hill tribe people that kind of dominate the area. And they're literally walking down the street in their silver headdresses, the bells and stuff hanging off their clothes. And just literally every direction you look is absolutely stunning. There's a golden temple on top of the mountain that kind of beckons from wherever you are. And I was instantly in love and enchanted and it became a stop on our trips. And it was a stop on our trips, forever, still today. And you know, I just wrote a blog about it. And it's, it's one of the places I love the most in the world. And it's unique to Thailand, because it's one of the few places you actually get non-Thais. It's these people that originally came from China. Uh, You've got a hill tribe people, you've got incredible scenery, and it's only 75 kilometers from the capital city of of that province.
0: Yeah, I've only been up there a couple of times to Chiang Rai. I haven't been to to that town, but it's spectacularly beautiful country.
1: Yeah, it's, it's unreal. So why don't we move? Let's head east to a place that you know more about than I do. And that is sleepy Lao. What, uh, what is one of your impressions of Lao?
0: You know, that's interesting. And it's a good segue to go from Chiang Rai to, to Lao because the, the countries border each other up there in the North, uh, separated by the Mekong river. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Laos is also one of those countries that I think very few people know a lot about and, uh, mm-hmm and and laos is just it's very naturally beautiful but what i love about laos is the people uh it's hard to find friendlier people in the world i think than the lao people um they're not going to necessarily go out of your way go out of their way to like help you change a spare tire not that that would ever occur to you but i i think that there's like no there's no strangeness because you're a stranger i think I think they're just so open and warm and, and friendly mm-hmm. to to anyone. I remember one of those first times I was up in Luang Prabang, which is the uh, Luang okay. Prabang is a UNESCO World Heritage site. The town itself, um, and and it's just. Gorgeous, right? But but the people there are so friendly. Like they're the Lao people are known for their textiles, and they make these really beautiful textiles. So at the at the night market, you could sit down and and you could be looking through these people's textiles, and you could spend fifteen minutes looking at every single textile they Mm -hmm. they have. And then when you get up to leave, and and even if you don't buy anything, they'll give you a big smile and they'll say thank you because they're just so happy that Mm -hmm. that you spent some time with them and appreciated you know the the things that they make.
1: Yeah, it sure is an enchanting place. I've only been to what Luang Prabang, and I've been to the capital of Vientiane a couple of times. But yeah, you're right. The, 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 if you think Thai smiles are big, uh, Lao smiles are huge, and Luang Prabang, it's it's a bit. I've heard it described as as a Disneyland, but not in a bad way, and just that they have mostly supported by tourism dollars. They've renovated and restored a lot of the original buildings, which, you know, take on local styles with European overtones. And it's, it's like walking through a dream.
0: Yeah. You know, it certainly is changing because of the influence of tourism. And, and many years ago, I I used to go up there for, you know, three, four weeks at a time every year, just to to relax and catch up on some writing. And I was always, I was always Mm -hmm. worried about the influence of tourism on Luang Prabang but as a UNESCO World Heritage Site they, they actually have rules governing you know how much they can change the existing buildings um but I, I just hope that the character of the the people of Luang Prabang will remain friendly and welcoming and warm for future travelers
1: yeah yeah I hope so too uh, you know one of my memories uh, that sticks out is also in Luang Prabang and I'm going to butcher the word of this game but um a popular game there with locals is Patank. Am I saying it right? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure.
0: It's it's a, it's like balls, bowls. The Italians mm. and the French play it, right? Where, like, bo- yeah. like bocce or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, kind of like bocce ball. But I believe from the days that the French ran Lao, they left their game, and it's played basically on a very narrow, long court. Uh, they have it with little tiny kind of pebbles or gravel of sorts that makes up the court, and you're trying to throw your ball kind of down closest to this small ball that kind of forms the center of sort of a a circle area. And they've got little, let's call it a court, that's probably not the right word, but we'll call it a court. They've got them all around the edge of Luang Prabang and the edge of the two rivers that kind of border either side. And yeah, it's just strolling around and you look down to the river and then all of a sudden you see these just local guys, fishermen, probably school teachers, and they're, they're out there morning, afternoon, evening, just in, you know, within the little bamboo forest along the river, throwing the balls. And I I would sit for like half hour, hour at a time, just sort of watching it from afar. And uh, it just seems so weird to be in kind of the northern bit of this sleepy Southeast Asian country along the Mekong River. And there's these people throwing these, you know, little balls playing this French game that just seemed out of place, but also... I think the nature of the game and the speed of it also was very fitting to the place.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I could I could picture it as you're explaining it, and I don't find it funny whatsoever that you would sit there and watch them for thirty minutes, because that's kind of what you do in Long Prabang. You you ride a bicycle around, you stop somewhere, and and you just watch the river, you watch the local people, you chat with some young monk. Uh, you just it's it's a really relaxing, really comfortable place to be.
1: Yeah, it is. That is a place like if you go in there wanting to storm around or be fast, like you're in the wrong place. You gotta throw it into low gear and really slow down
0: yeah but on the other side of thailand over in myanmar i think uh it's it's a very different experience wouldn't you agree
1: yeah it sure is i mean uh, i've i've been a couple times only twice about my two experiences were light years apart while only a couple years apart and uh yeah it is it is a different pace uh do you want to tell your tale or should Um, i tell mine
0: i don't know you can you can start it out go ahead
1: All right. Yeah. So the first time I went, I can't remember the actual year. I'm going to guess it was maybe about, maybe like 2010. And we went to Yangon, um, my now wife and I, we were dating at the time. And... We went for four nights and everyone said that's too long, but we just wanted to go and not be in a rush and just have time and relax and sat and chatted with a, a friend of ours, uh, Joe Cummings, who actually wrote many editions of the Myanmar guidebook. So he was nice enough to offer some tips and sent us to some truly unique and outrageous places, but also set us up with a couple contacts. So we had dinner. I can think of this one guy. I'm just going to call him Mr. X because even though things have changed a lot, you never know who's watching, but this guy X had worked in tourism for a long time, very connected, and we had a nice dinner, and he told us about life there, and he shared the story of how uh, to get a SIM card. It was $1,000 for a SIM card, so not many people had mobile phones. He told us how if you were going to spend the night anywhere but your own house, you have to go to the district police office in the area, so like just another area of the city. If he was to go stay with his parents... He has to go register with them and how in the middle of the night semi-regularly, the police would just come in and bang on your door and wake you up and check that the people that are registered to be living at that house are there and that there are not other people there. And I remember just kind of being blown away, but also it just backed up all the press and all the stories you you heard of it. So it was it was quite something to fly like in not even an hour, like forty five minutes from Bangkok and be somewhere where that was the reality. Now, fast forward two years later and this change is happening, which it's still not a perfect country and they have a lot of work to do to push democracy through But I went there in 2013 with my now wife, proposed to her in Bagan, in the northern, kind of the mid-northern part of the country. And that's when things had totally changed. Cell phones were suddenly everywhere. There was a real upbeat feel in the air. And we both kind of commented like, wow, what a change in just the feeling and the seeming day-to-day lives of people in just two years.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine because uh, I have, I've only been there the one time and that was back in 2002 and, yeah, and that wow. was when Aung San Suu Kyi was still under house arrest and there was kind of this uh, general feeling that that tourists should boycott the country because the military junta was, right. was repressive and everything but my, my then Thai girlfriend and I went there and we went to Yangon and we Organized to get a car and a driver and I don't remember whether it was seven or ten days But we did like this big road trip by car around the country And uh, whereas in Laos, like strangers or just someone new that they want to talk to and get to know. Right. But but in Myanmar, when we were going through these tiny little villages, I I felt like a space alien, you know, like people just (laughs) stared at us like they had no idea what what to think. You know, we were driving Mm -hmm. through this one town and the Burmese have these really cool hats that they make out of some sort of like, you know, straw or something, but they're they're really, really cool. And we saw this one guy riding one on a bicycle. And and my girlfriend was like, Oh, that's a cool hat. So our driver decided to do a U-turn, go back to the village we had just passed through, because he knew that there was a really cool hat shop there. And we went into this hat shop. And again, like, all the people who worked at the hat shop and and the kids around there just stared with their mouths open the whole time while we tried on like 20 different hats and and then bought 10 of them and and then drove away and they're probably <laughs> you know telling their grandchildren still like the, the day that that these space aliens came in and, and, and bought hats from them um but but i hear what you're saying about you know back in the day when it was a thousand dollar sim card and 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 it was you yeah. know kind of this somewhat repressive And and a very poor place as well because we went to Bagan as as well and and I remember Mm -hmm. that we hired a, a horse and buggy driver like he had a little horse carriage thing to, to drive us around the temples and uh, you know people have heard of Angkor I, I thought Bagan was was just as spectacular it, it's very different because it's high desert um, and there's not yeah. necessarily like this one distinct monument but there's there's hundreds maybe a thousand temples spread across this desert yeah?
1: yeah I'm sure
0: is. Um, and this this horse and buggy driver he was so he was so sweet and so nice and and we asked him because there weren't really any tourists there like you know how much money he makes and uh, and he told us that you know you know, on a good, good month, he, he averages about a dollar a day. And, <laughs> and yeah, and we asked him like, well, is that is that enough to feed your family? And and he said, sometimes. And, and that was really heartbreaking. And, and after we got back to Thailand, I actually wrote a story where I, I wanted to encourage foreign travelers to go to Myanmar because I felt that despite the political problems there that our money actually did go into the hands of, of men like him and, and and people who needed not only our money but they needed our exposure they enjoyed talking to us they wanted to know what the outside world is like and, and I guess now finally that's that's happening so I, I still think people should travel there and I'd love to go back again
1: soon yeah I'm dying to get back great great story man that's uh, woo, sometimes that's yeah I know it was sad I, I hope he's doing much better now yeah okay where do we go next Well, we were
0: just talking about Bagan and the temples, so Cambodia, you know, you and I have both traveled there together. I I wrote the National Geographic book. You've done the groovy maps there. You you guys did tours there. We both have a lot of Cambodia experience, so I don't know. Tell us something different.
1: Tell us something new. Something new and different. Uh, Well, you know... I'll throw in two here, so I'll keep them kind of short, but uh, one of them is I just visited a temple complex called Bante Chamar, and it's in the northwest, very close to the Thai border, and it's, you know, every time I'd been there, I was either hiring staff for trips, helping design trips, researching a map, and finding a full day to get to a pretty remote area was tough. And I'd always wanted to go a lot of it because you planted the seed. But just a week and a half ago, got on 250cc on off road motorbike and first 100k was on paved road, it was okay. And then it was 70k on sort of a road in in construct. But we got to this big complex that is about uh, it's surrounded by a wall and a moat. And it's a kilometer in one direction and about 800 meters in the other. And yeah, I mean, it's Indiana Jones. It's collapsed. There's vines and stuff all over it. And you realize that even after, say, a dozen times of being in Cambodia, you can truly get off the tourist truck. We were the only people there. I saw two other Khmer people at the end, and that was it. But so So that is a new impression. But one that always kind of gets me is anyone that's sort of over 40 there lived through the Khmer Rouge days. Now the Khmer Rouge ran the country in a bloody reign of terror from 75 to 79. So anybody that's over 40 actually lived through it. But say anyone that's 45 or over that you see and you interact with actually remembers it. And I find that, I just find it so fascinating that these people that you see are, are functioning and able to be nice and do jobs and get, they've somehow moved past it. It's amazing what the human spirit can 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 do so. Those are are two completely different ones, but yeah, the the latter one really gets me.
0: Yeah, you know, and and I think that's a good point. Again, if we're talking about how how nice and friendly people are, I think the Cambodian people are are exceptionally friendly, and and I think part of the, the Cambodian spirit is just kind of this hope that they have that that so many of them have seen such terrible things and and now that they have this opportunity to to show off their country and to welcome people from around the world to their country i think they have great pride and in in their culture and and in these temples and it's just a wonderful place but but talking about Mm. bantechmar like I think we could talk about that for an hour. Cause I, I find the place so fascinating. Um, they have a really cool community based tourism homestay you could do up there. So it's kind of, it's too bad that you, you only had like a really quick visit, but if we do get a chance to go back maybe together, like doing, doing that community based homestay up there would be spectacular. Cause it's one of the largest temple complexes in Cambodia and therefore one of the largest temple complexes in the world. And, uh, Hey, did you happen to go to that one temple with those giant towers of brick or those giant towers of stone that, that seemed like they were yeah, going to collapse? Yeah,
1: you know, you told me to go there and we just didn't have time. The weather was not looking good. Uh, it had taken us longer to get there, so we had to take off. I really probably only had an hour and a half max there. It was just not long enough. I'll have to go back.
0: Yeah, that's too bad. It's a really interesting area, and, and if you were to go to that temple, there would certainly be no one there as well, and you'd have have the place to yourself. and for people who just go to Cambodia just to see Siem Reap in the Angkor Temples, um, they, they're quite crowded, you know, so going off the beaten path to some of these more remote temples and, and having them all to yourself is it's really a, a cool feeling. And that's what I wanted to bring up was uh, if you're going to go to Cambodia, I think you should check out some of the more remote okay. provinces. Uh, w- way up in the northeast is uh, Ratanakiri hmm. province. and. Uh, that's just spectacularly beautiful they they have these volcanic lakes it's like a, a crater that's now filled with fresh water and I don't remember exactly but these volcanoes were you know 50,000 years ago right and there's a a Norwegian guy up there who has a little guest house near the lake and and he's got some off-road motorcycles and exploring the back country to go visit different tribal groups uh, and, and and see some spectacular countryside is. Just really cool. It's so different from, mm-hmm. from Siem Reap or Phnom Penh. And uh, you know, people should know that, that Cambodia actually does have a little bit of diversity in, in its terrain and, and its culture because uh, the, the tribal groups up there do lead quite a
1: different life. Sold. I want to go. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's do it. All
1: right. So Cambodia, we both love it. We've got to go back. We've got to see more. Let's slide northeast to Vietnam. So tell me one of your impressions of Vietnam.
0: Well, you know, I think it's everybody's impression when, when they've only been there for, for about a day and that's the, the whole motorbike culture because (laughs) I mean, yeah, so you laugh immediately. It's, it's just, it's crazy. Like there's so many motorbikes on the streets of of Hanoi and, and Ho Chi Minh city driving on the sidewalks, driving on the wrong side of the street. Uh, I think one of the coolest experiences you can have is just learning how to cross the street in, in Mm. Vietnam. Um, yeah, basically, you know, it's like a river of motorbikes. And it seems so daunting, because how they're not going to stop, like, how are you going to get across the street without getting run over. But miraculously, you can close your eyes and, and just start walking. And as long as you don't change your pace up, they'll just it, it's like going through a school of fish, they'll just go, they'll, they'll drive right around you.
1: Yeah, it is pretty crazy how it all works out, and in Phnom Penh, it's the same too. Not quite as many bikes, but yeah, that whole Zen
0: you got to just embrace the Zen and go with it. Yeah, if you if you stop or if you start to run, like you're dead, but but if you just if you just go nice and slowly and keep your
1: eye focused on the other side, don't panic. Uh, It's like you know, walking through grizzly bears. Well, my impressions, two quick ones from the same trip, I think. It was probably about 1993, first trip there. Friend and I backpacked from Hanoi down to Ho Chi Minh City. And one of them was in Hanoi. I was waiting for the bank to open. And I think it was just a bit more old school and everything was a bit more communist then. But I remember the bank was closed for, I think, two hours around lunchtime. And I happened to be near it. And I was sitting on a bench next to Hon Kien Lake, which is the main lake in the center of town. And this little girl selling postcards just kept chatting me up because they know you're eventually going to crack or they have nothing else to do. So they just keep chatting to you. And her English was great. And it was question after question. And one of the things I told her about Canada is like in Canada, this lake in the winter would freeze and it would freeze so thick that you could drive your car and it would hold a car. And this girl, like absolutely howled she like was laughing in disbelief you could tell she thought i was absolutely having her own telling lies and it just it still warms my heart thinking about it is this girl just could not wrap her head around the fact that the ice could actually well that the water could probably freeze but it could be so hard and thick that it could hold a car um, and then the other one was in Hoi An. about, I think there was four of us and we'd gone to a restaurant and it was some sort of backpacker price meal too, but it was a seafood feast with multi courses. And we had things I'd never had. We had stingray. There was some prawns in there. And then as we're having the shark, this shark comes out and it was, it was a very small shark. I was like, Ooh, I was expecting a piece of shark, but Hey, well, okay. And it's a tiny shark. And we're almost done this shark. And I kind of inquire as to like, wow, like what kind of shark is this? Why it's so small? And he he explains in very bad English that, oh, shark from mummy's tummy. And I realize, oh, my God, we've eaten shark's fetus. So, yeah, that was uh, (laughs) that was my other impression of Vietnam. Yeah, they really eat some curious
0: things, and, and Vietnamese food. I mean, you eat Vietnamese food maybe in America. There's a Vietnamese restaurant, but but the Vietnamese cuisine is arguably as good as the Thai cuisine. Yeah. Um, every time I go to Vietnam, especially the seafood, but they certainly have some weird stuff. You'll you'll see like a jar with with birds in it, and it's uh, some sort of liqueur that they, you know, it's like lao lao or some rice whiskey. But then they they feel the need to season it with with a dead yeah. crow. You know, like there's some awkward. Uh, eating or drinking moments if if you're put on the spot by some local people here you know
1: toast watch out for the shark's fetus man yeah that one sounds a little scary so let's head far south to the end of the the mainland peninsula To a very developed place, Singapore. What uh, is your impression of Singapore that you want to share?
0: You know, I'd like to do two really quickly, just because originally I was going to talk about my first time in Singapore. But more recently, I had been assigned to do a story that I would pitched about how I felt Singapore was the entertainment capital of Asia mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people don't know this but but Singapore obviously is this, this very powerful economy now and I think they've been trying to position themselves as kind of the financial capital of the world and I think in order to do that they needed to attract a lot of Western people to, to want to move there and set up their offices and their Asia headquarters there. So now, yeah. So nowadays you, you have all of these great nightclubs are open all night. You have casinos, you have formula one races, you have, right. you know, like beach parties with surfing machines and there's just so many really fun things to do in Singapore. Yeah. If, if you can afford it.
1: <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah.
0: But, you know, I mean the average American expat salary I think was like $120,000 a year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the average like rent is like 5,000, right? Yeah. So it's not a cheap place. But my first time there again was like back in 96 and, uh, they had just came that American kid yeah, for, for, I remember that. Yeah. So I think our, the original impressions of Singapore was that it's this draconian just dictator state. Uh, and it really has changed its image, I think. Uh, but it was expensive back then. We went to this bar called ice cold beer, which is still there. What did they sell? Um, they sold uh yeah, well that's that's part of the gimmick. Yeah, check this, right? Sure. So y- you buy a liter of beer, okay? Nice. And and if you can drink that liter of beer in a minute, it's free. Ooh. But if you can't, it's $30. <laughs> okay? So so there has to be like a point where you're like, "All right, if I'm not going to be able to finish this, I have to stop and and try and savor it a bit." Enjoy. But but the but the trick is that it is ice cold beer and and I don't know oh. if you tried to to chug a like if it was warm, yeah, Slippier, sure, yeah. but like yeah, I made your teeth hurt. Rain so I, oh. yeah, so I, I was out 30 bucks. So you did go for it? I went for it, and, <laughs> and I got about a third of the way through it before I realized it just wasn't going to happen. They actually had the record. Some American Marine had done it in like 4.6 seconds or something ridiculous. But those guys get some practice, yeah. I guess.
1: Well, my impression is more just the story of Singapore. And I'm not an expert on it, but I find it fascinating when I'm there to think of how quickly – that city has gone from literally being a backwater swamp banana plantation that managed to get basically tossed out of Malaysia. And I was reading a book on Singapore once and read that the Singapore government in the early 1970s actually sent a delegation to Phnom Penh, Cambodia to learn how to build a modern city. Now, they went other places too, but if you go to Phnom Penh now and you go to Singapore – to think that in the early 70s, they were going to Phnom Penh to learn how to do it, and you look at what they have now, it just, I mean, it it blows the mind. And, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, who was the original prime minister and steered the ship and still does to a degree, is kind of the main reason why. But that, my wife's Singaporean, so I go down a fair bit, and it it, it dawns on me every time. I think of the fact that, like... Yeah, you know, like forty some odd years ago, they went over to Cambodia to try and figure out how to do it. Like, wow, that's what, shocking. Yeah. It is shocking. It's a major, major jump forward. It really always kind of gets me.
0: And it doesn't seem to be stopping. I think two years ago, you know, like in the U.S., growth at like four or five percent would be great. You know, and here in Thailand, like they'd be stoked at six to eight percent. I think in 2012, Singapore's growth was like seventy-five or eighty percent. Like that country's still just booming.
1: Wow. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing is there, it's new buildings all the time too. They'll put up new creative buildings like fake tree garden and just their opera house and everything. It, it is really something. So how about for our last country that we've both been to, let's slide just a little further south to Indonesia. I know a place that you have a ton of experience, uh, Trevor, doing guides for Bali and whatnot. So why don't you tell us about your Indonesia impression?
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting. Again, just letting people know that don't know about these countries, Indonesia is this giant collection of islands and, uh, Bali is part of Indonesia, Java, where Jakarta, the, the capital is located is one of the islands. I actually wanted to talk about Sumatra. Um, my first experience in Indonesia was going to Sumatra and, uh, that was again back in 1996, and and I didn't I didn't even heard of Sumatra again. It, it's one of those places where they still have wild orangutans, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. And uh, there's a there's a giant volcanic lake in in the center of the island. Um, one of the, one of my early experiences there that was really strange. Now I traveled a lot with my parents as a child through Central America, like South America, the Caribbean. So I, I wasn't expecting any sort of culture shock, but I remember being in the small town in Sumatra and, and hearing the, the Muslim prayers from the temple echoing through the town. And, and I, I Oh, the culture prayer. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, wow. And, it, and it's really, I mean, at five o'clock in the morning, it's not beautiful, but you know, in the afternoon when you hear it echoing through the streets of, of these old cities, it's kind of a, a really cool experience. But, uh, yeah, the lake was really beautiful as well. I mean, uh, just Indonesia's got so much to offer, and it's so diverse. And, uh, you know, I love Bali. I, I'm, I'm planning to go back there in a few weeks, um, but I'd love to go back to Sumatra again. Uh, Borneo, there's Java, the Komodo, you know, like
1: there's mm.
0: it's, it's just such a diverse country. And, and I think it would be so cool to own a seaplane and travel around and, and surf the islands.
1: Yeah, I think you've just described half our listeners' dream life, probably.
0: <laughs> yeah. What about you? You were recently uh, at Borobudur, weren't you? Yeah,
1: I slid over there uh, in December, so it was actually the only time I've ever been to Indonesia. And when I I knew it was all these islands, obviously, and I was fairly knowledgeable in the geography. But once I got there, and I, I mean, I really sat and looked at the map. Like you, you realize, like, man, this is one of the. Probably toughest countries in the planet to unite. like this thing is thousands of islands, and I think it stretches like over 4,000 kilometers east to west. But anyway, I headed to the island of Java to a place called uh, y- Yogyakarta, and uh, jumped off to go see sort of one of the last major temple complexes in Southeast Asia I haven't seen. Now there's certainly still more, but Borobudur is a Buddhist one. Uh, obviously prior to the country becoming a a Muslim-majority country. And I had met this guy online named Fajar, who turned out he was a hippie cat. He had these long dreadlocks, and he had an old uh, purple Volkswagen Beetle, which was kind of right my speed then. It was just in December last year. And I had no idea what to really expect from Indonesia. And he picked me up, and we chugged like an hour through the countryside to Borobudur and I spent the night and the next morning I got up and I saw the temple and it's yeah it's incredible it's an amazing spot but you know kind of my my main impression was just watching the countryside go by seeing volcanic mountains because there's like the classic cone volcanoes in the distance and there's steam coming out of them as you you know see the Buddhist temple off to the side and then it actually wasn't as crazy and weird and different as I thought that particular area was going to be. It actually reminded yeah. me a little bit of the scenery minus the volcanic mountain, you know, around Chiang Mai. The city had a lot of colonial charms. The people were pretty darn nice. And, and and then I had just this this groovy laid back host. And, you know, I don't, it almost ties into the Thailand one with the hippie recommending we go to Doi Me Salong. Like, I don't know why it is because I'm not a hippie, but I kind of seem to meet, nice people, and they often end up being hippies, some of my first people. And this guy was And yeah, I spent three days with him. We headed out on real kind of pretty ratty motorcycles for a day out to a volcano. And, uh, yeah, it was just really neat that my first guy in Indonesia was this hippie guy. And he showed me a really great time, and he was just, yeah, he was really kind and good-hearted. And, yeah, it was a good experience, mostly because of him.
0: Wow, that's cool. And I think mentioning the volcanoes is an important thing because th- – All these massive active volcanoes just across Indonesia are are just kind of this trademark landscape that you'll see in in a lot of the country. But I was going to say Borobudur as well, like uh, the early Kings of Angkor and Cambodia actually traveled and and spent time in Java at Borobudur and and those temples influenced temple architecture in Cambodia thousands of years ago so there's some really interesting historical associations between a lot of these Southeast Asian countries that that would also make a a fascinating conversation.
1: I hope we're making notes of these we have a lot of different neat episodes to cover and we have just knocked off our longest episode and uh, where did the time go? We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I think you can probably tell we could go on for hours and hours Hopefully one of the things you take away from this is the diversity of the region. So you should take that into consideration when you're planning a trip. And we always say, you know, don't rush it, go less places, see more. This is a big, small area.
0: Yeah. Again, it's easy to get around. And so I think people are like, oh, I can just go here and then go here and then go here. And, and I think then you're, you're really only going to stick to the, to the touristy places with airports. And, and I think you do want to get off the beaten path a little bit, try some of the smaller cities, take your time exploring and, and really try and pay attention to the, to the many, many differences that, that you'll experience if you slow down and try and absorb yourself in these cultures a little bit more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each of them, as you you can tell from what we've shared with you, have their own very unique special sites. The people are very different. Uh, You're going to have unbelievably different landscapes. And then there's the food, which let's not even get started on it because it's a whole nother episode. So Trevor, why don't you take us out of uh, episode seven? Yeah.
0: Thanks, Scott. And thank you for listening to us uh, talk about our impressions of Southeast Asia. Um, as we fade away here, you can listen to the sounds of Jamie Rubin, who is doing the soundtrack to our podcast.
1: Adios. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom?